Hey, everybody, this is Karen Stefano, author of the story collection, The Secret Games of Words. And with me today, I'm happy to say, is David Rocklin, the author of the forthcoming novel, The Night Language. How are you, David? I'm doing well, Karen. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's it's absolutely my pleasure. I am so fortunate to have snagged an advanced copy of your book, and I thought it was beautiful, and so I can't wait to talk to you about it. Oh, thank you. I, I really appreciate that you enjoyed it. That's hugely meaningful to me. Thanks so much. Yeah, my, my pleasure. It was absolutely a gorgeous read. And with that, uh, though, I wanted to uh, immediately hit an issue that I, I'm curious about. And in the night language, your main characters are two black men, and you tell the story of a love between these two black men. And yet yeah. you're a straight white guy. And so my question is, are you concerned at all that you're going to catch any grief for cultural <laughs> appropriation? <laughs> um, <laughs> thanks for starting off with the easy ones. Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, My pleasure. Um, Any, anything to help. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, concerned. I, you know, here's the thing. I... I read, you know, I, I, there was actually even just an article in the New York Times over the weekend on Catherine Bigelow and the new film Detroit and, and how, you know, one of the early questions that I think in the minds of the, of the folks who will see the movie, will consume the film either as editors or audiences is, are you the right person to tell the story? Do you have the right and, as well as the toolkit to tell this story? And in the past, I've seen artists receive this question. Um, and, you know, kind of all, all around the fringes as well as into the heart of the cultural appropriation conversation that I think that all artistic communities have been having for quite a while. Um, and, you know, whenever I see an artist kind of chafe at that, you know, and say, you know, how dare you ask me that question and nobody has the right to tell me what I can create. Um, it always, I have to admit, it bothers me a, a little bit to see the artist take that tone um, I think it's a fair question. I think it's a good question and a healthy question and an important question. And so I don't really feel any concern about getting the question. I kind of hope I do. And I hope that it allows for a conversation about what it was that I hope to do. Um, I leave it to people who will hopefully read the book to decide whether I was successful in doing it. Um, but I, I just thought that the thing that brought me into writing as a writer in the first place, which is you write from a bit of a, of a lonely spot and you are reaching out for um, the chance to, to give and receive empathy and understanding and a deeper sense of where you belong and, and you know, how you might fit into the world. If I'm going to be true to that, then let me go ahead and write about something and someone besides people who are just like me. So that's, that's, I mean, that's kind of the jumping off point, I hope, for any conversation. And then if the conversation flows to how did I do, you know, did I, did I create a stereotype or did I depict somebody poorly or could I have done a better job or was I not culturally sensitive, I'll take those criticisms and try to learn from them if I hear them and think, oh, wow, there's something to that. 
Um, but I'm never going to worry about getting that or really any question. It's, it's part of the privilege of putting out a piece of art that hopefully people will hear about and pick up and read. And if they have any questions or comments, all I can say is that means that what I created found some sort of place in their lives. And I can only be grateful for that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's such an interesting question. And you, you mentioned the the article in yesterday's New York times and uh, mm-hmm. the, the issue was addressed a couple of months ago in the New York times book review section in the, that back section uh, bookends and the two micro essays addressed what distinguishes cultural exchange from cultural mm-hmm. appropriation. And right. one of the authors of those essays, a woman named Anna Holmes, I don't know her, but her bio says she's an editorial executive at First Look Media. And she says, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read from what she wrote here because I think it's so interesting and so on point to this dialogue, is that it's, it's dependent on intent. And she says, specifically, appropriations are expressions of ignorance or aggression when objects, ideas, lived experiences, or points of view are not so much examined as exploited and performed. Exchanges, conversely, suggest a certain sort of generosity and openness to discussion and an invitation to reciprocity. And uh, I, I thought that that was so, so well put. And uh, certainly, I, I love your approach to this question that, that, that you open it with, uh, that you welcome it with open arms. And so that to the degree uh, it, you, you can further a dialogue, you, you will. And I, I personally think that's such a, such a healthy attitude and such a, such a beneficial attitude uh for for our writer community and um i i completely jumped the gun in asking you that because i wanted to start by having you give us a quick summary of the book and, and uh just give us a quick hook about what the book's about but maybe i created enough of a hook right there um but, there it is. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's there's yeah, the tagline. Right. Read this book and see how pissed off you get. <laughs> <laughs> right there, you go. Um, uh, no, but give us give everyone uh, since since it hasn't been released yet. It's coming out in November, correct? Yes, November fourteenth. Oh, okay. Tell our listeners what the book is about, and then if you're if you're willing, I'd ask you to read. Uh, a little excerpt of your choice from the book. Thank you. No, I would love to. You know, um, and I, I'll explain this this uh, sort of one sentence description um, maybe after I, I take the lovely opportunity of reading a little bit for you. But this book is it's an unexpected love story, and by that I mean it was it's unexpected to the characters and it's unexpected to me as the writer. Um, the the backdrop of the story. Uh, My debut novel was called The Luminist, and it was set against the early age of of photography. And it was very, very loosely based on a woman named Julia Margaret Cameron, who was one of the first photographers of just a trailblazing, groundbreaking, border, you know, and and, uh, restriction smashing person, fascinating person. And in part of my research on her, I was able to get into the Getty archives and see many of the photographs she took. 
one photograph really struck me. It was of a young boy, maybe 10 or 11 years old, um, who was, he was black and he was dressed in what the colonial British would have imagined an African person to look like. So to our eyes, it's a fairly difficult portrait. It's, you know, teeth around his neck and a spear and a shield. And it's, it's, you know, it's troubling to any sort of modern sensitive person sensibilities about, you know, depiction of otherness and of other culture. Um, but the look on his face was absolutely haunting to me. I've never, and I, I have two kids. And so I've seen every <laughs> expression you can probably imagine, but th- there was a look of loneliness and isolation and the hopelessness on his face that just made me want to know who is this child? Who is he? He can't just be one of um, Ms. Cameron's models. There's, there's got to be something to him. I set the photo aside until the luminist was done and, you know, had acquired a publisher and it was on its way. And so I went back to the photo just out of curiosity with no thought in mind that this was going to be where I found the next novel. But in researching him, I found out that he was the son of the emperor of Abyssinia, which is now Ethiopia, and that, to make a long story short, in, in or around Easter of 1868, England invaded Abyssinia to put right a diplomatic slight that the emperor, who was a devout and probably insane Christian conservative, had committed against them. And so they essentially decimated the country. If you go to London now and and go to the Albert Museum, you'll see antiquities from Abyssinia that were taken during that very, very brief war. The emperor killed himself in real life rather than be caught. And so when the soldiers left and were headed back to England, among the things they took was his son. And so this young child who had never been away from home, had never heard the English language, had certainly never seen anything like you know, mid-19th century London was suddenly whisked away and made a ward of Queen Victoria. And so the displacement, the sudden clash of cultures, the, the, the feeling of complete sort of, you know, dislocatedness to me was fascinating and a story began. But the more I knew about his story, the more I realized that I, I was feeling um, a need to rewrite his story because in life he died at 17 of pleurisy. So it was a it was a lonely and sad life. And in fact, one of the epigraphs at the beginning of the novel is an actual quote from Queen Victoria about the actual young man uh, whose name was Alamayu. And so I felt the need to write for him a life that he did not have. And that's really where the novel comes from. And then, as I said, the novel became something I didn't even intend in the first couple of drafts, which is a love story. Um, about the kind of love that sacrifices, the kind of love that will do anything to keep the other safe. Um, It wasn't the book that I had in mind, but it was certainly the book that the characters had in mind. And at a certain point, I got out of their way. And that's where the night language comes from. Wow. Uh, Beautiful. Um, Well, with that, would you read for us? I would be happy to. So, At the very beginning of the novel, um, we meet uh, a man at the turn of the 20th century, really at the dawn of the 20th century. Um, He is standing alone um, at the the seaside in France near Monaco and Nice, and he's painting. Uh, We don't know much about him. What we come to learn, um, germane to this piece I'm going to read, is that his name is Philip. Um, He has one friend in Paris where he lives. He lives above a synagogue. 
and his one friend in the world is a rabbi named Ariel. And that at, while at Seaside, which he is there just on a brief respite from the sea, he sees an old woman come from a boat um, onto the bank. And as she's walking, he realizes this is the very, very elderly Queen Victoria. And his response is to hide. And he's completely undone by the sighting of her and follows her throughout France for her three-day holiday, learns that she's in extremely poor health, um, goes back to Paris, tells the rabbi that having seen her, he has no choice but to return to London. So there is a history between them that the rabbi doesn't understand that he does not want to make clear. And so as we pick up this part, he is um, at the channel crossing, waiting to leave Paris and go to London. This is where the, the piece picks up. The rain slowed to a fine mist. Paris was transformed, made a dream as he left it. Behind him, the storm littered the city in woolen light. The rain smudged Paris's steel, making it appear impressionistic and suggested, both beautiful and impossible to see clearly. Soon, though, the city would explode in foliage, blossom earthen-toned umbrellas and children in boarding school lines, shedding their coats despite the warnings of the provisors to play where now he only saw puddled reflections of the battleship clouds passing over. Over the years he'd lived there, he'd witnessed the city evolve in a wondrous geometric progression. Roofs of tar and flinty stone gave way to spires, to gleaming metal and artisan glass. The open sky became stitched with wire, along which the voices of the age carried. Dirigibles floated like clouds, and because of them, the world below came to think of its hemispheres as something simply to be measured and traveled. It was a time of marvels, so much to consider, almost too much to take in. He stood at the boundary channel and thought of Alamayu as London first saw him a stranger who emerged from the war that leveled the only world he'd known, who came with nothing but a legacy too large and terrible to put into English words, who grew like London and Paris until there was no more room and the truth of his life burst into the open at last, an orphan accused of murder before Queen and Parliament. There had been a moment back at the synagogue when he was certain he'd say it all to the rabbi, but he'd been too terrified of the destruction doing that would surely cause. How could he even begin to, to say a human being, a life, the only thing he knew how to do was what he'd always done, hold that life inside of him. It had been enough until his glimpse of the queen. Now it felt as if there was nothing left inside but the secret he carried. The boat came for the channel crossing. He let the others board first so they wouldn't take offense. Porters carried their possessions, but he carried his own. While they were seated and attended to, he provided papers proving him fit and free to travel. When it was clear that his presence was an undeniable fact, he dragged his trunk and found a seat well apart from the others. A few passengers appeared queasy at the insistent turn of the water. He could have suggested Doan's pills or a pressure point to push to lessen the nausea, but he wasn't called upon, and besides, it wasn't any of his business. I brought you some of my tea, Philip. I knew how much you'd miss it. Rabbi Ariel took a seat next to him. He held a fat, fat cloth valise packed full for a journey. What are you doing, Rebbe? All my life spent in one neighborhood. What use does anyone have for a man like me who lives his whole life without seeing the world? Now you, you've seen things. Perhaps you'll tell me about them as we travel. It will help pass the time, or so I'm told. It's better that I'm alone, Rabbi. In London, I don't even know what will happen to me. If you understood, you'd want no part of this. You'd turn around and go back to the Marai while you still could. I've decided I can't live with a not knowing. Like it or not, Philip, you matter to me. So if it's complaint about my being here, shock. Go back to your silences. But if you'd like to entertain me with some stories of Abyssinians and royalty, you'll find me an amiable listener. 
He looked as any good father might look at his child. There was tolerance and concern in his eyes, along with a pervasive weariness. He pitied the rabbi's ungrateful missing sons that they somehow decided their father's eyes weren't worth the hard work of remaining. The ferry got underway. His thoughts came untethered to drift on the winds across the water to London. How did you meet such people, Rabbi Ariel asked. It began in the Abyssinian War. Simple as that, eh? He sighed. During the battle at Magdala, there was a small cottage on a mountain peak. It was on fire. After that, we returned to live at Windsor for a year, give or take. That's all there is to it. You can go home now. Shah, the rabbi settled back, making it clear he wasn't going anywhere. War isn't an easy thing to talk about, Rabbi. Nothing's easy for you to talk about, Rabbi Ariel said sourly. War. No words could hold it. It was vividly death, but also vividly life. He'd seen the faces of the men waiting to be turned loose to charge the battlefields where they knew they'd die. He'd seen the impossibility in their eyes. No one was so alive. It's a long ferry ride to London, he thought, and I ought to say something more. I guess the rabbi's right about me, though I won't give him the satisfaction. He knows me better than anyone has for a long time. I've forgotten my voice for some things. You'll tell me it's none of my business, the rabbi said, but I don't understand the point of this trip. My trip. Our trip now. The queen is ill, terribly ill. The princess said so. A sad thing. Are you her doctor? I need to see her before she's gone and it's too late. That's all. The rabbi opened a book and began to read, his lips moving with the words. Reaching into his coat pocket, he withdrew an aged yellow letter and unfolded it along its well-worn creases. January 9, 1869. Love is language. It comes to us before we can speak it. It demands our fluency. Learning it undoes us or brings us home. Maybe it's finally time, he thought, for my life to be this, these words. Nothing in my life has ever brought me home. Maybe the only thing that will is the truth. He got up and walked to the bow of the ferry, away from the rabbi and the rest of the passengers, as a curious sensation settled over him. A ship, the water, viewed from this spot as it steered away from all he'd known, making its way to a strange place. He'd been in this precise place before. Each time he found himself crossing a boundary body of water, it was because the world was changing right out from under him. Now look at me, he thought, crossing the channel as if no time has passed since the first crossing when I was someone else. Beautiful, David. Absolutely beautiful. Oh, thank and, you. Uh, thank you so much. And I'm glad you chose that passage to read because obviously it it tees up the story for everyone listening. But it also reflects the absolutely gorgeous language that appears throughout this book, and it it, it also sets up. The, the themes of of loneliness and mm-hmm. and displacement and you know I have to share that uh, when when I was reading this book the the loneliness theme pushed at me really heavily and even from the from the first chapter with the frail queen. And one of my questions I, I was going to ask you, and I think you've already answered it, was, was that your intention or was I just projecting my own loneliness and, 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 and uh, often sense of isolation onto the story? Uh, but tell, tell me about uh, the, the otherness themes in, mm-hmm. in the novel. Right. You know, I, 
It's certainly, you know, I think when I start a novel, I don't really have a particular theme in mind. I have images, I have people, I have circumstance, and maybe a word or two that's exchanged uh, in a way that may not mean anything at the moment, but comes to mean something in hindsight. And those things appeal to me, I think, the way that the photographs I saw at the Getty that Julia Margaret Cameron took appealed to me in that I knew I wanted to do something with them. But it didn't occur to me as a theme that I want to, you know, and the luminous that I suppose you could say the theme is the frailty of memory and and our efforts to take a moment of life and just try to hold it and never lose it. Um, but certainly in hindsight, looking back at the book, looking at how it turned out, uh, it's pretty clear that that's what was emerging um, onto the page. And in this one, I think certainly... Um, perhaps even more so than than loneliness, which I know we're going to talk about in a moment, but otherness um, certainly is what emerged on the page. And again, the, the novel, yeah. I didn't intend for it to be a love story, but the otherness aspect, which I was so drawn to in the first photograph I saw, um, it absolutely grabbed at me because it's how I've always felt. I've always felt a mm-hmm. bit like an outsider looking in. And writing to me is how I make sense of the world. And I think for you know other writers, yourself absolutely included, you probably feel similarly. It, it, it's it's a lonely undertaking, and it's weird because when you when you think about something, you know what what other profession other than yours and mine, um, if somebody comes up to you and says, "Hey, listen, I saw the job you did. I cried," and you take that as a massive compliment, <laughs> most of the time <laughs> right. that would be. That would be a little disturbing, you know, if, if you were, say, uh, you know, a police officer and somebody came up to you and said, hey, listen, I saw the way you handled that suspect. I cried. You know, the next line is, and I will be making a formal complaint. So it's not necessarily <laughs> a welcome a welcome thing. Um, but for writers, artists, I think you, you, you are immediately touched because it seems that something you did resonated. And for people who feel a little bit othered, who feel a bit understood, who feel a bit not seen um, and a little bit outside, the fact that some piece of you or some piece of something you created found a place, it's as if that is what you've been looking for, is to find place. Um, and so this character is somebody who didn't intend to try to find place. I mean, I think that in the early going of his story, he is fairly closed off and, and perhaps even resigned to a fate that he can't even understand what it might be because he's going to a city that is unimaginable with people who are beyond his linguistic understanding. Um, and as the story goes on, you find out just what happened to him at home that left him othered even at home. Um, and so he's certainly not looking for a place place finds him. And that's why I think this love story is in my mind unexpected. And certainly the more I wrote, the more I was drawn to that feeling of no matter how other, no matter how disconnected or, you know, sort of isolated one may feel, nobody is ever so far away that they can't be reached in some way. And that that's really, I think, where this story began to to direct itself and i suspected that it was moving in that direction when the character of alamayu essentially told me sometime during the first draft you know i'm a lot older than you're depicting me right i'm not a kid (laughs) and i had to take a step back from the first draft and realize that he was right 
he's not 10 or 11 years old. As he was emerging on the page, his thoughts and his feelings, he was more around 16 or 17. And the story began to fall into place with that. And then the emergence of a character, Philip, who in the first draft in all my outlines did not exist. And so that's why I think of this as an unexpected love story to them and to me. These are characters who didn't exist on the same page for quite a while, who found each other on the page. And I just had to step back and let them become what they became. And it was really kind of a remarkable thing to watch. Yeah, that sounds like a beautiful thing for you to experience as, as an author. And uh, yeah, as I, as I was saying, just the themes of otherness hit me really viscerally uh, while I was while I was reading the book. And in fact, so much so that I had to rewatch that uh, Lydia Yuknovich TED talk, mm -hmm. the, the misfit talk. Um, mm -hmm. So I had to, yeah, I had to rewatch that or, um, because it, you know, it's such a, it's such a soothing talk. And um, mm -hmm. she was, gave you the most beautiful blurb in the world, comparing the book to the English patient saying that if you read one novel this year, let it be the night language. That's pretty high praise. I'm that's a, that's a beautiful I, I blurb. Was, yeah. I was completely blown away and taken by surprise by that. And just eternally grateful. I mean, she's yeah. one of the leading lights in, in the larger literary community. There, there's a reason that she is absolutely blowing up because good things happen to extraordinary people. And, and she's just a walking, breathing example of that. And not only is she, just a flat out ridiculous, great writer, but she's, yeah. she's just lovely. I mean, she, the only thing she knows how to do is give back and, and raise other writers and artists uh, with her. It's really, it's very remarkable. And the fact that she liked the book is just, is just uh, frosting to me. It's just, but it was just a, it was a beautiful blurb and, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm going to just confess to you right now that every now and again, I might take out the cover and just reread it. <laughs> <laughs> I would too. Gosh. Yeah. Um, yeah. I haven't had the pleasure of meeting her in, uh, awesome. in person yet, but I know that I, I will one day and I've, I've read her books and I'm a, I'm a fan and a fan of, yeah, how, how she reaches out and lifts up others in mm -hmm. our community. It's, it's, uh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to see. And uh, again, I can't I can't get away from this otherness and uh, mm -hmm. loneliness theme. But uh, yeah, you hinted at uh, something that you and I talked about when I was mm -hmm. at your signing of the night language at the EA in New York a, a couple of months ago, and I I asked you the question I've been asking a lot of my writer friends lately, I've sort of been taking a poll. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I shared how I've had this really weird, almost debilitating sense of loneliness, when I kind mm -hmm. of when my head kind of comes back into the real world after I've been in my head writing these days. And right. you were very, you were very kind and generous and, and, and shared your own experience of, of mm -hmm. when you kind of refocus back into the real world versus your the writing world do you want to do you want to share how how you feel sure. sometimes yeah I, I absolutely well i mean and you know the, the thank you so much for that characterization of me because that's exactly how i felt talking with you i mean it's always it's always a cool thing to find a kindred spirit who gets it and 
that feeling of, of getting it, I think also gets at exactly your question. You, when, when we go, when we dive deep into these things that we write, I mean, for example, you dove deep for the secret games of words, you know, I mean, it's, it's a gorgeous story collection. There's just pearls on the page. You know, I, there's one that really stuck in my head um, in the short piece in defense of memory loss, you know, mm-hmm. where you're talking about um, the, the character's background as a hotel maid and her responsibility in each room was to erase all evidence that anyone else had ever existed there. I mean, that's just gorgeous. But at the same time, that line is just aching. I mean, that's just, you get the absolute, um, in the context of that story, you, you get what's lost to this character. And, you know, the, the observer character is, is telling us what is lost to this person because of dementia. And it's just, it's a beautiful line. But isn't that also just where every writer lives is in, you have to get to this aching place to put something like that on the page. And I, I'm sure the poll you're taking, 99% of the writers feel the same sort of awkward reentry into the world when they've gone deep in their writing, because that's where we have to go. If we're, unless we're you know, just writing, <laughs> no offense to anybody out there who, who finds unbelievable emotional resonance in Fifty Shades, but unless you're writing, <laughs> you know, something that is kind of superficial and glossy, and there's a place for that, you know, there's, right. there's, a, there's a reason why, you know, people love fast food, because you, you know what you're going to get, and it's not challenging, and it's, it goes down relatively easily, it might make you sick later, but, you know, eventually you kind of develop a hardened stomach for that sort of thing. But, you know, if you're trying to if you're trying to really reflect something that aches, then you kind of have to go into it. And it is hard to come out of it. And it's really hard to explain it to people who don't do it. And that's not to be exclusionary, because, you know, all of us want the circle of of the work we're creating to be complete. I mean, we're only doing half of it. Right. We're only doing the writing part. And when it goes out there, the circle is only complete when someone reads it and then hopefully even comes back to you and says, this is how I felt for, for better or for worse. Then the circle's complete. That's what we're all doing. So we, we absolutely need the presence of people who might not themselves be writing or be going to that particular spot. But if you've ever come home from just a day of writing and someone asks you, well, how'd it go? How are you feeling? You just, you don't even have words. You almost feel too right. tired to respond. And that's why, you know, friends like you, other writers in the writing community, we know each other because we have that shorthand. You know, you could try to sit down with your significant other and say, oh, my God, revisions and these characters are not cooperating. And they'd be like, wow, yeah, that, that doesn't sound so good. So do you feel like Italian tonight? And, and it's not right. fully understood but if you if you pick up the phone and call one of your writer friends who's there and who's grappling with the same sense of disconnectedness and and loneliness because you have to be alone and cut off and completely submerged and you just tell them i've just been submerged the characters are just not speaking back to me that's all you have to say every nuance is understood and that's true of any profession if a dear friend of mine who's, you know, a, a, a doctor comes home and says, oh, my God, aortic valve. I'd be like, I think that's one of the things that makes your heart do stuff. I think <laughs> so that's I'm not an necessarily going to. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm reasonably sure you kind of need that. What else? But if she were talking to, you know, a fellow surgeon, they would the, all, the shorthand is there. And, and so 
the I, I think, although we, we love our families, one of the only things that really forestalls, and this is a hard lesson that I learned from the luminist and then moving into the creation of, of a reading series, it was because when I was on tour for the luminist, I began to find myself in the company of other writers and I began to feel less alone and less not understood and not heard and not seen when I wasn't just by myself writing. And it was a really nice feeling. And I know you feel it too. And we're, you know, at readings, if we're, if we're reading together, or if we're going to readings of other people, you're, you're in a company of people who get it. And that we need that because we have to then go back and go back to a lonely place. There's no choice if you want to do the work. Um, and that, that's been the remedy for me is, is, you know, hosting a reading series and seeing other writers come up, present their work and get that circle completed and just see the smile on their face. It's beautiful. Just listening to you talk about your own experience inspires me to get out into community more, uh, you know, physically out the door at, you know, go show up to a reading uh, so that I get fed by my fellow writers mm-hmm. and fellow yeah. and fellow readers. Um, mm-hmm. And it's such a, it, it's such an interesting thing because, and uh, I, I think that we beat ourselves up a little bit uh, and don't feel productive if we're not doing our button chair time and if we're mm-hmm. not forcing ourselves into that lonely place. But yeah, just, just talking to you about it, uh, both in person when we were in New York and, and on this podcast uh, tells me, Hey, dummy, the answer is, uh, is, is right here. Just go, <laughs> go spend some face time or voice time with your fellow writers some more. Um, but yeah, I've been, all, all of my writing friends who are listening to this podcast, uh, you're going to be, you're going to be pulled with this question, uh, by me, uh, because I'm, because I'm really interested in getting to the bottom of it and, mm-hmm. and sharing, uh, this unique experience that, that, that mm-hmm. we as writers feel. Um, but, uh, segue here, uh, your reading series, uh, in LA, mm-hmm. Rorschach. Yeah. Tell us about that series. So as I mentioned, that series, um, it arose out of the book tour I did for the first novel, The Luminist. I I found myself, you know, I had never done anything like that before. I'm not an MFA. I was not part of any literary community. I was one of the thousands and thousands of people who felt that the only way you write is to just go close a door (laughs) and just start writing Mm -hmm. and be alone. And so, and you know, for somebody who's always kind of felt like an outsider, it did not feel particularly nice to, to essentially go to the place I've always tended to avoid, which is a place of, you know, self-reflection and, you know, isolation in order to get this story out, but it could not be gotten out any other way. So I did it. And then, you know, when I emerged and, and found that actually, of all the wonderful things, somebody actually wanted to put this book out into the world. And I found myself doing a, a book tour for it, which was really kind of a remarkable experience. I, I found myself asking people at each stop, like, you know, is there something else going on tonight, you guys? Cause I know you're not here for this. <laughs> Just, it was all <laughs> very surprising to me, but a lot of times as with LA and, and, you know, any other major literary hub, a lot of writers show up for other writers. And these are people I did not know. 
And then afterwards we all hang out and talk. And it was, it was the feeling like when you and I were talking in New York, it was just this feeling of being understood and accepted. And like you are a part of something, even if you didn't realize that that something existed. And my experience with other writers up to that point had been workshops, which are not always the most conducive settings for, you know, writerly, uh, you know, kinship and, and mutual love. It, it, sometimes it's a little bit more like armed combat, as anybody who's ever workshopped mm-hmm. a piece can, can tell you. Um, but out of one of the stops, I actually read with uh, The Rumpus in San Francisco. And I met a couple of people who were running a reading series there. And it just occurred to me, wouldn't it be cool at the time we kind of considered it to be a sister series, but that series has since shut down and, and mine's kind of continuing on. I thought it would be really cool to start a reading series in LA having, of course, no idea that there's, you know, how many reading series are there in LA, but you know, LA is a pretty decently served literary community in terms of different, you know, venues for people to get out there and, and read their work. But of course, being lively ignorant and, you know, sometimes it pays to be stupid. I, I didn't know what I didn't know. <laughs> so I reached out to a couple of writers I'd met along the tour and said, hey, I'd like to start a reading series in LA, but I don't know any writers. Who should I talk to? And probably laughing behind their computer, they sent me some names. And so I invited all those people to dinner and they're like, who are you? <laughs> and I said, no, 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 let's that all sit down. I want to start a reading series. And someone said, you'd be cool. And they're like, um, no, <laughs> but a few enough, enough people said yes, that we all sat down, got together among them, some just extraordinary writers like Antonia Crane and Lauren Eggert Crow and Melissa Chadburn, like remarkable. It's I, I, stumbled onto just gold mines in the form of human beings and writers. It was really kind of amazing. And I just said, okay, I'm going to start a reading series. And they're like, yeah, okay, you're, you're adorable. Go ahead. <laughs> you do that. Um, and I just, I found a venue and started it and we just passed our fifth year and it's, it's wow. family. I got to say it's family. It's, it's people who come, um, you know, regularly people who discover us for the first time writers who are published nationally and internationally writers who are published locally writers who have not been published yet we do like a writing improv contest which is a lot of fun and we just create an atmosphere of inclusiveness and diversity of voice and uh lightness that's that's i mean i i I never want to be too ponderous i mean the material we do you know that the writers will read can be very heavy um as one would expect in the literary reading series but we try to keep the tone fun because I really want all the writers and the, and the audience to see in that room that this is a welcome place. You can take risks. You can put out stuff. You know, what's that old adage about write what you know? I, I'd much rather that myself and other writers write what you don't want anyone to know because that's the stuff. That's what we're all after. But at the same time, you have to feel safe you know, somewhat safe yeah. to do that. Um, you know, the bravest of us still have to feel like, oh my God, is this going to just open up a chasm in the earth and swallow me up? So in that room, I don't care. As I mean, if you're putting out just like pointless misogynistic violence and there's no literary merit to it, there's no reason for it. Yeah, I'm probably not going to ask you to read. But in terms of this is difficult, this is hard, this is painful, this happened to me, um, you know, this is a welcome place and you're safe there. And so we've had writers who who will cry while they're reading and then they get lots of love and hugs and, and, you know, come sit by me. And that was amazing. And 
let's talk about what you wrote. I mean, connections have been made. Friendships have been made. It's pretty cool. Um, so I'm super proud of that. And, uh, you know, the community has been really supportive and excited for me and for the new novel, which is something I didn't have with the first one. So it's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, in the time since the first novel now to this one, it's a very different writing world for me and I just could not be happier with it. Yeah. Well, uh, that's, that's been fantastic. I'm so happy to, to hear that. And I know that it's, that this book is going to be well received, uh, not just among the writing community, uh, but on on a on a huger scale, uh, readers oh, readers thank everywhere you. are going to be able friend. to connect. <laughs> yeah, well, well yeah, thank and, you. I do and, appreciate. You know, <laughs> and and going back to the to the cultural appropriation question uh, before before we wrap up because we are running out of time. These things go so mm-hmm. fast. But I um, I I think your attitude is beautiful, and I do think that. Thank you. Uh, People are going to ask you that question, and I think some people will maybe in attack mode. I certainly hope not, but uh, I love your willingness to dialogue on it, and I think that that's a healthy, necessary thing for us in the writing community. Oh, thank you. You know, I mean, what, you know, just to just to kind of sum up how I feel about it. You know, I think the question. The question that gets put in these situations is what right do you have to tell this story? And I think for me, really, my my honest feeling is I have absolutely no right whatsoever. You know, what I have is curiosity and a need to understand someone besides me and mine um, and a desire to inhabit and illuminate and then put up in, in written form lives that maybe somebody picks up that book and says that makes me feel like I'm seeing something of myself there. That's if, if somebody were to come up to me and say, you know, thank you for writing that book because I feel seen. Um, then in, in a sense, I mean, I, I care how, how the book does cause Hey, I got kids, <laughs> but you know, uh, that will be, that will be as meaningful, if not more than anything else. Um, any, any accolade review or sales or anything could be, that's, that's the part that drew me to this story. Um, this, this love story, um, you know, the dedication, um, in the book is to the love of my life and to yours. And so, you know, if, if, if I write something that allows others to see themselves in each other just a little bit more, I'm, I'm cool. I'm very down with that. That's, that's the most I could ever ask for. Well, I think you've hit a home run there for sure. Um, So now can people pre-order your book? They can, they can pre-order it off of IndieBound. They can pre-order it directly from the publisher, Rare Bird, and they can even pre-order it off Amazon. It's, it's up in all those places. Um, okay. please do pre-order cause, uh, it does make a difference in terms of how the book launches and you know, how sales go. So, and you know, if you, if you have a mind to when you pre-order it and if you, if you have a chance to read it, reach out to me, I'd love to hear what people think about it. I, I love that conversation, no matter which way it goes. It's, it's, I take it as an absolute honor that I get to put something out in the world and people have a chance to read it. That's, that's huge. So it's wonderful to hear from anyone, book clubs, schools, anyone have book will we'll travel and we'll write back to you. Awesome, David. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been a 
pleasure to talk to you. The Night Language is a beautiful book, and um, I'm just, I'm so happy for you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the chance to talk with you in person, on the phone, and in friendship real life, and I know I'll see you soon.